You're listening to the sermon audio from Redemption Church. Redemption Church exists to exalt Christ, edify the saints, and evangelize the world for the glory of God. For more information on Redemption Church, just go to redemption.church. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 1 through 6. Follow along in your Bible as I read the text for us. Ephesians 3, verse 1 through 6. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. This is the word of the Lord. You know, it's interesting that the mystery genre has always enticed eager readers. Some of our most famous detectives are fictional detectives, aren't they? Detectives like Sherlock Holmes, who can forget him? Or Nancy Drew, maybe you remember reading those books as a kid. Or, or the Hardy Boys. Right? The mystery genre not only dominates literature, but it also dominates television. I remember back in the day watching with my grandmother, Murder, She Wrote. You may remember that one. Or Matlock, good old Andy Griffith, right? And so today, as you look at our modern landscape, there are more CSI shows with more abbreviations and locations than I will even attempt to recall. So there, there's obviously something intriguing about these sorts of shows. And of course, my, fam- my favorite TV detective uh, maybe because there's some similarities between me and my wife and this detective, but it was the, the neurotic and OCD detective monk, if you remember him. <laughs> so I, I've always appreciated him and find great sympathy with some of his concerns. So, but, but, but that begs the question, though, why, why is it that the mystery genre seems to be so popular and, and prevalent and, and fascinating to us? And I suspect that the reason we love these sorts of mystery shows is is it's not that we so much love the mystery, but we love the journey of discovery. That is what draws us in. It's one of the reasons why there are not many uh, unforgivable sins in American culture, but, but the one unpardonable sin in American culture today is to spoil a movie or a TV show, right? You will, you will earn the hatred of your neighbors if you do such a thing. Whether it's the next blockbuster film or whether it's the season finale of your favorite show, people will get physically angry with you, if not a little bit violent, if you tell them the end of the show, the end of the movie, before they've had a chance to watch it. Now, why is that? Don't people want to know what the answer to the mystery is? Right? Why bother wasting two hours of your day watching a movie if you can just get a quick spoiler online? Now, why, don't, why, why, why is that not fitting for us? Well, we want the experience of having gone through the journey of discovery. We don't want the answer. We want the journey that leads us to that great spoiler reveal. 
So we love to experience, don't we, the surprise twist to the narrative. We long to be among those who, after we see the movie, know the, the open secret of the ending. Of course, the only way to get people off the internet is if they're avoiding spoilers online. So in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, our passage today deals with a mystery. The mystery of God's plan that Paul has now received and now shares in his ministry. Now, as Paul uses the term mystery, he's not referring to the sort of mystery we typically think. He's not referring to a puzzle that we need Scooby-Doo and the gang to solve for us. No, rather, Paul is talking about the great spoiler of the narrative of redemption. He's talking about the great narrative twist in God's will and purposes that have now been revealed. Because this mystery was hidden. Nobody knew it. But now it has been revealed. It is revealed. So the movie is out, so to speak. And Paul is giving us his spoiler-filled analysis about God's purposes in the world. So in our text today, we're going to first see that Paul's stewardship of this mystery. How does Paul steward this mystery? How did he come upon and receive this gospel? And how has he sought to proclaim this gospel faithfully? So we'll talk about Paul's stewardship of the mystery first. Second, we'll see the specifics of how God has revealed this mystery of the gospel to our present age. How, did we, how do we know what this mystery is? And then third, we will consider how we have been included in God's mysterious purposes. And so, spoiler alert for the whole Bible, this sermon, right? So this is the grand narrative of redemption, and we're going to be looking at just what God is doing in the world, just what he is up to, the great twist that nobody saw coming. So first, let's talk about Paul's stewardship of the mystery, his stewardship of the mystery. In the first verse of chapter 3, Paul clears his throat to begin to pray for the church in light of all the promises of the gospel he has expounded so far. Look at verse 1. How does it begin? For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles. So he's gearing up to pray, and he's compelled to stop for a second to interject before he starts praying in order to explain his situation and testimony. He's eventually going to get to prayer. Look at verse 14 in the passage. Notice the similarity in language, how he re-gears up to pray in verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. This is where Paul's trying to get to, but he feels the need to explain himself a little bit before he gets to prayer. We might be tempted to, to think that the first half of Ephesians 3 is a bit of a tangent, or it's some sort of interjection, an excursus, if you will. But Paul is interjecting the flow of his argument here, but he is actually trying to provide further clarity, further instruction, further illumination on his own ministry and everything that he's been teaching us so far in the letter to the Ephesians. So why does Paul feel the need to start praying and then kind of back off a little bit? What prompted this great excursus? It was his mention of the imprisonment. Look at verse 1. I, Paul a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, you Ephesians. <coughs> 
So as Christians today, we see it as a badge of honor to suffer for Christ. We see it as a great indicator of faithfulness. We love reading Fox's Book of Martyrs, right? We love hearing the stories of those who suffered for the cause of Christ. We hold up Jim Elliott and many others like him who died for the cause of the gospel as heroes of the faith. But the early Christians didn't have that tendency. In fact, they struggled to understand how God could have a purpose for his own people in suffering. In fact, the early Christians had this temptation to think of suffering as a sign of weakness an indication of shame, and perhaps of God's disfavor. So if Paul is God's messenger, right? He's God's messenger. He's the one bringing the gospel. He's the one who, to whom this mystery has been revealed, as we'll see. Then the Ephesians were wondering, and indeed most of the people who had been infected by Paul's ministry, they were wondering, well, if Paul's God's messenger, how did God's messenger end up in prison, right? What's going on with that? Should we really be listening to the guy who's in jail, Right? Is that the man of God that we should be listening to? Now, Paul's opponents tended to discredit him because of his suffering. Paul's ministry was constantly challenged, even by the very churches he planted. So in Philippians, a letter written around the same time here as the letter to the Ephesians, Paul deals with those, he says in Philippians 2.17, who preached Christ out of rivalry in order to afflict him in his imprisonment. So so the Corinthians repeatedly did the same thing, right? They repeatedly critiqued and discredited Paul's ministry because Paul was always getting beat up all the time. He was always in suffering. He was always in jail. So Paul is forced to defend his ministry, to defend his apostleship, and he chooses to do so in 1 Corinthians, excuse me, 2 Corinthians 11 by boasting about his sufferings. The, the, the suffering that the Corinthians used to question Paul's apostleship is the very thing Paul uses to defend his apostleship. So as Paul begins to pray, he's dealing with a similar sort of concern that the Ephesians were probably having about his imprisonment and about what it means for the validation of his ministry. And so he interjects here in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 1 and 2, he interjects in order to explain his chains to explain his ministry and why he is where he is. You see, Paul wasn't aloof to the sort of criticism that was swirling around him. And so at this point, Paul is in prison at Rome. Now we read about his imprisonment in Rome at the end of the book of Acts. Paul was arrested at the temple under the false accusation of bringing an in, a Gentile, particularly Trophimus of the Ephesians, so one of the Ephesians' owns, right? He, he gets in trouble for bringing Trophimus, this Gentile, to the temple, and he is falsely accused of bringing this guy into the inner sanctum of the temple, the place where only Jews were allowed to go. And so they believed Paul deserved capital punishment, at least so the false accusation went. And so the Jews incited a mob, and they're getting ready to drag Paul out and kill him before the Roman tribune intervened and calmed the disturbance. Now we can see, as we've, if you've been paying attention throughout the book of Ephesians, we can know why it is that the Jews had it out for Paul. Why did they hate him so much? Well, the Jews from Asia were told in Acts, who stirred up the mob, what did they yell at the temple? Do you remember? Men of Israel, help! This is the man, this Paul. He's the one who's teaching everyone everywhere about the people and the, uh, against the people and the law in this place. So what sort of teaching did these Jewish Jews from Asia take such offense at? 
Well, it's the sort of radical ideas that we've seen in Ephesians chapter 2. They hated this sort of teaching. Christ tore down the dividing wall of hostility. He's making one new man in the place of two, Jew and Gentile, being reconciled together. It's those sort of ideas, particularly that instruction on the new people of Christ as Jew and Gentile together. That's the thing they hated. So the Romans arrested Paul after that event for his own protection against the mob. And of course, you remember the narrative of the book of Acts. It begins this long journey of trial and imprisonment as Paul is passed around for years between Felix to Agrippa and eventually to Caesar. And so eventually Paul makes it all the way from Jerusalem to Caesarea. And he finally arrives in Rome after a shipwreck on the Mediterranean Sea. It's quite the journey. But the Lord gets him there according to his providence. So Paul, as he writes the letter to the Ephesians, is awaiting acquittal under arrest as he writes these prison epistles, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Philemon, all written during this Roman imprisonment. And so Paul wishes to explain his circumstances to the Ephesians, and he clarifies precisely why he is in prison, why he is in prison. Why is he there? Look at verse one. What does he say? He is a prisoner of the Romans. No, that's not what it says. (laughs) He's a prisoner of Christ on behalf of you Gentiles. So notice what Paul does here as he already begins to defend himself in his ministry. Paul affirms the sovereignty of Christ. He is a prisoner at Jesus's command. It is Jesus who by his providential working has put him in chains and gave him a state-sponsored trip to Rome. And he recognizes that he himself is under chains for preaching the gospel to the Gentiles. That's what sparked the whole thing. And so because of Paul's commitment to preach the gospel to people like the Ephesians, that's the reason why he is now under chains and in his affliction. Indeed, it is the conviction that he had that the Gentiles are included in the promises of Israel that earned him so much hate. Paul's gospel was offensive and subversive. It brought him suffering. It brought him persecution. But yet Paul could not help but preach and steward the gospel as he had received it. And it is this gospel that he has stewarded, or the word could be administered when he ministered to the Ephesians. Assuming, look at what he says, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. Notice the, the, the passing of the gospel there. Paul is the faithful missionary, and he transmits what he has received. That's his job. He teaches what God has spoken and revealed. Paul had faithfully preached this gospel to the Ephesians, and they too, by the grace of God, received this gospel. They believed upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul is in prison because he's committed to preaching this gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ to the Gentiles. And so Paul stresses to them that he preaches exactly what God has revealed. Paul says, I'm not inventing this. I'm not making this up. This is what I have received from the Lord. Look at verse 3, right? How the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have briefly written. I have written briefly. That refers to everything we just read in Ephesians 2. (laughs) Everything Paul just talked about. He's just written about it briefly, right? Helping us understand how the gospel does bring that reconciliation between Jew and Gentile. So this is a very important point for us, is that the gospel is not Paul's invention, but God's revelation. And our job is to steward the gospel well. 
This is huge for us as we think about our responsibility of stewarding the gospel in our own generation. The Christian faith is not one that we can adapt, modify, or change. We can't broadcast different versions of the gospel on a test market and then adopt the changes that make it seem more successful. We don't run beta tests on different versions of the gospel to see which one has the the least bugs in our current culture. No, we don't do that at all. We don't have the authority to change the gospel because we didn't invent the gospel. It's not our gospel. It's God's gospel. So we have only what we have received. God has spoken, and God has spoken by his word. So if we hope to steward the gospel like Paul strived to so faithfully do, we have to first realize that we are messengers, not marketers, that we are heralds, not inventors, that we are ambassadors, not kings. Every theological error under the sun stems from well-meaning but misguided people attempting to adapt the gospel in light of the concerns of the modern age. You see, we do not adjust the gospel to another culture but we work to communicate the unchanging gospel clearly to the culture we find ourselves in. So the temptation to alter the gospel comes, often it escalates when we find ourselves like Paul facing persecution and suffering. When the world hates us and when the world hates our message, we are tempted to repackage the gospel into something more palatable, something that might take the ease of heat off a little bit of the scorn. And perhaps, maybe if we adjust it right enough, maybe the the world will applause for us and think that that we're good people and that they're they're glad that we're here. So we we don't want to aim to be unnecessarily offensive, right? We got enough people out there doing that sort of thing. We don't want to be, uh, we don't want to be intentionally offensive by our conduct and our speech. We don't want to be jerks as we go about preaching the gospel. But we can't be fools. You cannot preach the gospel without some people hating you. That's just part of gospel ministry, part of being a Christian. And we are fools to think that if we, by our own wisdom and ingenuity, can sand away the offensive parts of the gospel and become heroes in the culture, it's just not going to happen. No, like Paul, we preach Christ and him crucified. We preach Christ and his offensive gospel. Why? because it is the mystery of God that has been made known to us through Jesus, through the apostles, and of course, through the scriptures. So if you hope to be a faithful steward of the gospel in your generation, in this current generation, we have to first and foremost make sure we understand the gospel that we have received. That's foundational. You can't be a a good steward of the gospel if you don't know what the gospel is. So you must be a student of scripture. You must be a a student of scripture, having your mind constantly renewed by God's word day by day so that you might discern truth from error. But then we proclaim that true gospel with boldness and without fear. We do so lovingly. We do so persuasively. We do so zealously and earnestly, but we do not modify the gospel when the handcuffs start coming out. We do not modify the gospel when the tweet storm starts raging. And we do not modify the gospel when our boss starts firing. This is God's gospel, not yours. It's not mine. It's not Paul's. 
We're merely proclaiming what we have received from God, and we must steward the gospel well. You, you may think that stewarding the gospel is just a job for missionaries like Paul, or perhaps for pastors like me. I've had to count the cost of stewarding the gospel, and so will you. Will you compromise your convictions about the gospel in order to stay employed? Will you water down the implications of the gospel in order to appease a lost family member? Will you keep your Christian faith hidden from your friends like a badge of shame in order to not earn their disapproval and their judgment? You see, stewarding the gospel is the responsibility of every Christian. Every Christian, you've got a responsibility here. And will the Lord find you faithful on the day of his return? You see, while Paul was a faithful steward of the mystery of the gospel, just where did he get this mystery from? Where did it come from? And of course, as we've already alluded to, it came by God's revelation. God revealed it. And that leads secondly to God's revealing of this mystery in verse 4 and 5. God revealed it. So as Paul writes to the Ephesians, he explains this mystery of the gospel to him, to them. That's what he's been doing throughout all chapter 1 and chapter 2. Here's the gospel. Here's what God is doing. Here's how he's saved by grace. Here's how he's making one new man in the place of two. And then look at verse 4. He says, when you read this, meaning everything I've written so far, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. So the entire letter of Ephesians so far is Paul's attempt to help explain to them, to help them understand the scope and the breadth of God's working in Christ, that all things are united in him. That's what Paul's working on. That's what he's working towards. So he's been teaching them. And so the gospel is a mystery, not because it is concealed, but because it was concealed. That's hugely important. The gospel is an open secret. <laughs> it's an open secret. It's not some sort of hidden or secret knowledge possessed only by a few. That's always the marking of a cult, by the way, right? Christianity isn't like that. Christianity is not like the cults of Scientology or the Freemasons, right, where you have to get promoted in the organization to get the, the secret knowledge of what's really going on. You know, the mystery of the gospel is an open secret. <laughs> it's being proclaimed, of course, to all the church, and indeed not just all the church, but to all the world, what God has done. But for a time, God's purpose in Christ was concealed from the world. It was shrouded in mystery. People didn't know what God's will was or what he was doing. So Paul writes about this in verse 5. Look at what he says. Which was made which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. So while today the mystery of the gospel is revealed to us, plainly for us, prior generations didn't have access to the gospel, not in the same way we do now. Nobody knew exactly what God was doing and working in the world. But now that the mystery was concealed, now it has been revealed. And in his plan of redemption, God has chosen to include both Jews and Gentiles together, making them one in Christ. Now, like any good mystery story, if you've been practicing your sleuthing skills by all these TV shows, right? Like any good mystery story, the clues of the Gentiles being included in the blessings of God are scattered all over the Old Testament, 
They're all over the place. Genesis chapter 12, Abram is called by God to be a blessing to all the families of the earth. Psalm 2 verse 8, we see that the Messiah will inherit the nations as his inheritance, and the end of the earth is his possession. In Isaiah, we see breadcrumbs, right? We are told that the coming servant of the Lord will be a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, and that God's salvation will reach the end of the earth. There are breadcrumbs and clues all over the place in the Old Testament. You see, a good mystery is one that you didn't see coming, but when you go back, the twist has been revealed all along the way. We were just too obtuse to see it. And you can see all the evidence in hindsight. So it is with the mystery of the gospel. The Old Testament gives some signposts of what God is doing about how the Gentiles would be included in the promises of Israel, but the scope of God's full plan for their full inclusion into the promises of Israel, that was a surprise, that was a twist, that was a spoiler nobody saw coming. Nobody. So Paul states that the full inclusion of the Gentiles is actually a recent revelation by God, recent for Paul's generation. Read the book of Acts. Go back and read through it maybe later on this week and look at it and discover the shock and the surprise that Peter had when the Gentile Cornelius is converted and when he receives the same Holy Spirit as the Jewish believers. It is a mind-blowing event for him and for the entire church. This twist of the Gentiles being included in the promises of God it wasn't revealed clearly in the Old Testament, nor was it revealed clearly in the ministry of Jesus. So there are pointers along the way. No, God has revealed this mystery of the Gentiles being included in the gospel. He has revealed it clearly in the age of the apostles. And so to the shock of the Jewish Christians in the first century, God was dismantling the theocracy of Israel to form a new international community of people called the church. But now, in the gospel, God is making known to us the mystery of his will. Remember Ephesians 1 verse 9? That mystery of his will is being made known to us. And the Lord is leading his church into the full knowledge of his plan, the full purposes he always had. The mystery was hidden from us. Nobody knew it. But now that Christ has come and the spirit is here to bring us into all truth, now it is open for us all. It's been revealed. And so as Paul prays for the church in chapter 1, verse 17, he prays that the Lord may give us the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. So now that Christ has come, and now that we have the Holy Spirit, God is leading us into this glorious truth that the gospel's for all people. And how has this revelation been revealed? Look at what Paul says. Paul tells us that this revelation has come to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. The apostles and prophets, similar to the end of Ephesians 2, refers to the New Testament era of teaching of that first century church uh, this gospel upon which the church was founded. So if we want to understand the mystery of the gospel that has now been made revealed, we've got to look especially to the writings of the New Testament. This is where we get it. This is the authoritative record of the apostolic teaching. It's the very word of God. But it is the New Testament itself that functions as a key for unlocking the meaning of the Old Testament. This is why Christian scriptures, the New Testament, is important if we want to understand the Old Testament. 
Doc, uh, many of you have heard of director M. Night Shyamalan, who's famous for his twists in movies. In fact, it's so expected now that nobody is surprised by the twist because he does them in every movie. But, but perhaps his most famous twist came early on in his career. And it was a, a, a suspenseful movie called The Sixth Sense. Maybe you've heard of this one before. It's been out a long time. So I'm going to spoil the movie to make a point. You're welcome to close your ears for a few minutes if you hadn't seen it, right? I'm going to spoil it to make a point, right? We find out at the very end of the movie's twist that the Bruce Willis's character had been a ghost the entire time, right? He had been a ghost the entire time. He had been dead. He didn't realize he was dead. That's the big twist. But what makes that twist in that film so effective is that almost as soon as you watch it, it demands a second viewing, doesn't it? Because then you want to go back, and as you watch the movie a second time, you can see all the clues that were there right before us the whole time that he was a ghost, but you didn't realize it until the twist came, and then you go back and rewatch, and you're like, ah, it all makes sense. You can see all the clues right there in plain sight. And that's exactly how the key of Christ works, the twist of the gospel in terms of understanding the Old Testament. Now that God's mysterious purposes has been revealed in the New Covenant, now, as we go back and read the Old Testament, it gives us new insight. God put all the clues there right under our noses, and we missed it. We didn't know what he was up to, but it's clear that he was. But, but, but with the complete revelation of the gospel, now we can rightly interpret Old Testament scripture as Christian scripture. Christ is the hermeneutical key of interpretation that unlocks the meaning of the Old Testament. As he told the two disciples on the road to Emmaus after his resurrection, all scripture points to me. All scripture points to Jesus. And Jesus is referring to the Old Testament when he's opening up the, the Bible with those on Emmaus. All this means that we, if we want to understand the mystery of this gospel, we've got to be faithful students of scripture. We've, we, we've got to. We want insight into the mind and purposes and plan of God in this world. We've got to consult his word. That's where it comes from. The gospel we steward is the gospel God has revealed. And so we must build our lives upon the authority of scripture. So let me ask you, do you read it? Do you read it? Do you study it? Do you pray that God might give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him? Do you get as excited about learning about scripture and the mystery of the gospel as you do the latest plot twist of a Marvel movie or the finale of your favorite TV show? You see, the gospel is the true story the true story of the whole world. And there is no story as glorious, as wonderful, as precious, and as beautiful as the story of redemption found in the pages of Scripture. And the mystery of God has now been revealed to all who wish to understand it. All. God has disclosed it all to us. He's laid open his plan from before the foundation of the world. It is open now on your lap. You can read it. You can study it. You can be in awe of God's amazing wisdom. So may we devote ourselves to reading, studying, and memorizing the scripture. May it shape our hearts. May it transform our lives. May it equip us to steward the mystery of the gospel faithfully in our own generation. And as you peer into God's word, your mind's going to be blown away by all the implications of this mystery. And Paul can't help but elaborate yet again on what is this mystery that he's talking about? What is this mystery of the gospel? What does it mean for us, particularly, that we as Gentiles have now been included into God's promises? 
That leads thirdly to verse six, our inclusion in the mystery. Our inclusion, we've been included into this mystery. So Paul helps define the mystery, define the twist that we've been talking about in God's plan of redemption. He writes about it very plainly in verse six. This mystery, here's the definition, right? This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. That's the mystery right there. The benefits of the inclusion of the Gentiles, which is just about all of us in this room, I'd imagine, right? Unless you're Jewish, right? But if you're a Gentile, this is, he's talking about us, that the implication of our inclusion into the gospel, it's vast. Because Gentiles, like you and me, we're not second-class members of the kingdom of God. Nor are we just outside observers looking in. No, Paul says we have full inclusion, full participation into the promises of God that come through Christ. So Paul relishes this by mentioning how we are, one, fellow heirs, two, members of the same body, three, partakers of the promise. Let's, let's consider each one of those at a time. First, Paul says, the mystery of the gospel tells us that we're fellow heirs. The Jews and Gentiles, we've talked about it in this book, they were at enmity with one another. Paul talked about that extensively in Ephesians 2. So before Christ made one new man in the place of two, look right back up in chapter 2, verse 12. Remember who we were before Christ came along. Chapter 2, verse 12, we were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That's who you were. That's who I was before Jesus came around. But now, by faith in Christ, we Gentiles are included in the heritage of Israel. And indeed, we're, we're included, not just in the heritage of Israel, but the heritage of heaven itself. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. God has unleashed it all. We, we have it all. Paul leans heavily here on that language of inheritance. He discusses it quite frequently in his letters when he talks about the gospel. Romans chapter 4, verse 13, he discusses how God's promise to Abraham and his offspring that they would be the heir of the world, that it doesn't come through the law, but that it comes through the righteousness of faith. Right? It's not by obedience to the law we become heir of all things. It's by faith in Christ. The promised inheritance comes by faith, not by works. So as we are justified by faith in Christ, we are no longer condemned criminals, but now we become heirs of heaven. Paul stresses the magnificence of this in Romans chapter 8, where he writes that as we have received the spirit of adoption as God's children, he says we are heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. So our new status as God's children brings you and I, if you're in Christ, it brings you the blessings of an inheritance. Paul stressed this not only in Romans, but he stressed it all over Ephesians. So you got Ephesians open. Go back to chapter 1, verse 11. Look at what, what Paul writes. Ephesians 1, verse 11. In him, in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Look at, look at verse 14 of chapter 1. As the Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. Look at chapter 1, verse 18. 
having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And now look at Ephesians 3, verse 6. He tells us that we Gentiles are fellow heirs, heirs with Israel, heirs with Christ. You see, the mystery of the gospel now revealed announces that the Gentiles receive the full blessing of sonship, the full blessing. Psalm 84, verse 10 tells us that it's better to be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. Now, that's certainly true. But the good news of the gospel is that we're not doorkeepers. God doesn't treat us as slaves or servants, but as sons. We do not stand at the door of God's kingdom as a butler, but we sit at the dinner table as one of God's own children. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Galatians 4, 7. Because only children receive an inheritance, don't they? And the glorious mystery of the gospel that has now been revealed is that God had planned from eternity past, from eternity past, before God ever said, let there be, he had planned to bring the Gentiles, you and me, into these promises to make us heir, co-heirs with Christ. And he chooses the people of Abraham to be his people, but it is through Abraham that the Christ would come to both redeem and reconcile the Jews and the Gentiles, bestowing upon them every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And so we are heirs. But second, Paul says, this mystery of the gospel talks about how we're members of the same body. Members of the same body. The universal church of Christ is multi-ethnic and multinational. All the peoples of the earth are unified together by the blood of Christ. And that universal reality manifests itself. It shows itself in local churches as people from all sorts of backgrounds are brought together into membership of a local church. The, the body metaphor is a common image Paul uses all over the place to describe the church. It communicates both the diversity and the unity of the church. That's why he loves it so much. Paul elaborates on that image in 1 Corinthians 12 most extensively. I'm sure you're familiar with the passage. For just as the body is one and has many members and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. And then check out what Paul says in verse 13. He says, for in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of the one spirit. So the connection that Paul makes in 1 Corinthians 12 is the exact same one that he makes here in Ephesians 3. That both Jews and Greeks, Jews and Gentiles, are united together by one spirit, baptized into one body. And so the church is made up of all sorts of different parts. It is a tapestry of different colors woven together as one. It is a mosaic of humanity presented as the one blood-bought bride of Christ. And so in all of our differences, it's the gospel that unites. It's the gospel that brings us together. And in our fractured society, it is the gospel that glues. In an isolated world, the gospel binds our hearts together. As Christians have frequently sung, blessed be the ties that bind our hearts in Christian love. 
The fellowship of kindred minds is like to that above. See, the gospel brings forth a membership of the church of both Jew and Gentile into the same body. And then thirdly, Paul talks about partakers of the promise. Partakers of the promise. You see, the mystery of the Gentile inclusion makes us participants. We partake of the promises that God has given. Before Jesus, Paul said we were strangers of the promise back in Ephesians 2. But now, he says, because of Christ, we're no longer strangers of the promise. We are partakers of the promise. Notice the contrast. When we read the Old Testament, sometimes you can read it and you can feel like I'm reading a foreign book written for somebody else. (laughs) This is a foreign book for somebody else. We can open up and we can read Isaiah or we can consider a psalm or we could hear God's covenant with David and Samuel. And sometimes as we read the Old Testament, we can feel like interlopers, like amateur historians trying to understand a foreign people in a strange context. And we read the Old Testament, therefore, with apprehension, thinking that it's largely irrelevant, right? It's it's too much distance between us and the promise of Christ. But shockingly, Paul tells us just the opposite of that. Paul tells us that if we are in Christ, God's promises to Israel now belong to you in Christ. We were strangers to them, but now we are partakers of them. So as we read the Old Testament, as we read what God says to Jacob in Genesis 28, so does he say to you and I in Christ, behold, I am with you and will keep you where, whoever you go and will bring you back to this land for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised to you. And when the Lord speaks to the prophet Isaiah, to Israel, he speaks of our future. Arise, shine for your light has come and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you for behold, darkness shall cover the earth and thick darkness the peoples, but the Lord will arise upon you and his glory will be seen upon you and nations shall come to your light and the kings to the brightness of your rising. So does God speak to his church. And when Ezekiel ends his prophecy by describing a new temple that God is going to build, God speaks a promise to come, not only of the new heavenly Jerusalem that will collide with earth, but he speaks of the church that will be enjoyed by all in Christ as the book concludes. And the name of the city from that time forth shall be, the Lord is there. By Christ, we are partakers of these promises. They are our promises now. They belong to us in Jesus Christ. Now, of course, I'm not suggesting that we distort the scripture in the Old Testament and and rip it out of context and make every passage about us in a ham-fisted sort of way. No, we always want to understand the context. We want to rightly understand the biblical audience. Yes and amen. But Paul's point is that the covenant promises that God made to Israel now belong to all who are in Christ. All, including every Gentile who bends their knee and confesses Jesus Christ as Lord. They are your promises now. You are partakers of them. So the Hebrew scriptures are Christian scriptures, and we should make no apologies about that. I had an Old Testament professor back in the day who cautioned me greatly of ever bringing Jesus into the Old Testament. And I just think, with the hindsight of a little bit more wisdom, I pray, man, he missed it. He had a PhD in Isaiah, but he did not understand that Christ was that key that actually unlocks all the meaning that is in the Old Testament for us. 
And so church, ponder upon these mysteries. Go to the Old Testament. Learn more about what God has been doing in the world and what he will do. Because you have been included in these promises. You've been included in these blessings. You are not a second-class Israelites. You are a member of the church of Christ. You are not an awkward child that God keeps away in hidden shame. No, if you are in Christ, you have full inclusion, full participation, full joy in the promises that God has made to his people. Because the mystery of the gospel is surprising. It was surprising to Paul and his own generation. It could be surprising to us, but the gospel is not a secret. It's not a secret. It has now been revealed. So may we, Proclaim this gospel to one another, particularly when we find ourselves low and discouraged and despairing. And of course, may we proclaim this gospel to the world that they too may come to join in the mysterious but glorious redemptive purposes of our God that have now been revealed in Christ. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, as we come before you this morning, we confess that without your revelation, without your word, without your spirit, without your scriptures, we would know nothing of your purposes in the world. But God, we are grateful that you have chosen to reveal yourselves to the lowly. You have brought this gospel to all the peoples of the earth. Lord, so you have given us a spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of Christ. God, I pray for those of us who are in Christ this morning that we would not cease to be amazed as we spend all our lives, indeed all of eternity, unpacking and exploring the great mystery of the gospel that we have now received. But Lord, I do pray for those here this morning who are not in Christ. Lord, right now they don't have these promises because they're not partakers of them because they're not in Christ. So Lord, I pray that in response to the preaching of the gospel this morning, that they would respond with repentance and faith. Lord, that they might turn from their sins and put their faith in Jesus Christ and his finished atoning work upon the cross, that their sins might be forgiven, that they might receive the righteousness of Christ, that they might be adopted into your family and so become joint heirs with us and joint heirs with Christ in the promises that you have given by your word. Lord, help us to preach this gospel faithfully. Help us to steward it well in our generation. And Lord, we pray that as the mystery goes forth, even if it brings us chains as well as it did for Paul, Lord, may we be faithful, bold, and courageous. And may your gospel go forth to the ends of the earth. And may the nations be glad and sing for joy. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.